taking us in our Bibles this morning, the book of Hebrews again, but to a new chapter, starting Hebrews chapter 9 this morning in our ongoing exposition of this glorious book we're in Jesus, our great high priest in the new covenant that he mediates from now through all time is presented to us. If you look at chapter 9 then, the book of Hebrews, and follow along as I begin reading this morning, beginning in verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Let's stop there and would you pray with me this morning. Father God, as we look to these, your words, these words that take us back to your words of old in the law of Moses. We pray for understanding. We pray for right perspective. We pray for the ability to let go of what you say let go of, though we honor it, for we honor you, and to embrace what you say is our way and follow it, because we honor you. And you honor us by allowing us this privilege. Bless our understanding this morning. Glorify yourself here, we pray, through the power of your words. By the Holy Spirit that indwells the believers and convicts the unbelievers of sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're starting a new series, not really... New in one sense, but new in another. We're going forward, so it's new material. We have closed out an introductory, par or introductory paragraphs in chapter 8, namely the obsolescence of the old first covenant. Verse 13, it's that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete in chapter 8. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to pass away. Last week, we studied that there has been more than one element of the worship of God or of the ministry of God that God has used for a time and then set aside. Even the grand physical use of Noah's ark that delivered eight people alive through the wrath of God, the flood of the entire earth is now obsolete. It is no longer needed. 
that was symbolic and real of a physical deliverance. But it did not provide a spiritual deliverance to eternal life. What we are being called on to embrace in the new covenant is the vehicle that God has designed to carry all who will believe and have faith in that vehicle unto eternal life in Christ and to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, even unto the heavenlies where Jesus is. These things are sometimes hard for us to turn loose of, these things of the past, particularly for the people of Israel, for the, for the Hebrews who had practiced the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, the sacrificial system, the system of the Levitical high priests, and so on and so forth, for centuries. That is why this book is specific to the Hebrews who will need the most direction in turning loose and believing God's word when he says the old covenant is now obsolete. But there is a need for us to speak in detail what Hebrews did not need to be spoken of in detail. Verse 5 of chapter 9 ends, Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, but I find as a new covenant pastor in the year 2023 that we have such a number of years of history and such a cultural gap between us and a true knowledge of Israel and how they worshiped their God when they were under the, new, the old covenant that it is necessary for us to go on a field trip. And so I've entitled this new series, Adventures in the New Covenant. Adventures in the New Covenant. Some of you say, well, it sounds like a vacation Bible school uh, title. And perhaps it would work for that. But it's even more important for us to venture into this realm that God would have us do. But in the first place, we're going to take a field trip to the past. A field trip to the past. We're going to take a trip to the Museum of the Covenant. To the Museum of the Covenant of the Tabernacle. We understand that the first covenant now is obsolete. And in doing so and in rendering it so, God has also rendered the tabernacle wherein Israel worshipped and held to the rules and regulations and worship of the old covenant, that was also rendered obsolete. It becomes, if you will, a piece to be recreated in the display of a museum. The museum of God's past dealings with his people, Israel. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to go on a tour of the tabernacle that is given to us by the writer of Hebrews. And we do this so that we might be properly oriented. It will properly orient us for the putting for putting the fullness of our faith, if you will, in the new covenant and in the ministry of our new high priest in the heavenly tabernacle. Sometimes it's important to visit a museum to see the past and so then appreciate the future. I always found museums very interesting as a child and, and we were really blessed and as I understand we are here in Lewistown as well uh, having a good museum. 
And I loved going to the museum in uh, Helena, Montana, the town of my childhood, and visiting the museum. And I was especially fascinated by the displays of Native American life that we used to call Indians. The Indian displays. And my favoritistest of all was a model display of the great buffalo jumps that the Indians used to use to harvest the buffalo to get them through the next year in the winter. Where they would slowly and steadily, a, a few brave Indians would go out into the midst of the buffalo herd covered in buffalo hide and acting like buffaloes and start to get the buffalo herd to move, to move slowly in the direction of the buffalo jump. And then placed strategically along the way, the other warriors and people of the tribe were, were spread out in two long rows making a funnel of a big giant V. And once these warriors who were in the midst, who were covered in the buffalo hide, started the herd moving, then some would come up behind the herd and startle them. And it truly was an act of bravery for those men who were dressed in the buffalo hides to get out from the middle of this herd before it stampeded toward the cliff that they were funneling them toward. And then at the bottom of the cliff, there was depicted in the, in the museum uh, the warriors with their spears and their bows and arrows. And as the buffalo would jump over the side, you would think that they would all be killed by the fall from, from the cliff, but they weren't always so, and even they were wounded and so forth. And then they would kill them with their bows and arrows and with their spears. And I thought that was cool. That was fascinating. That's something I would have liked to have participated in. But that whole entire culture was in a museum. For even the buffalo jump itself became an obsolete form of hunting for the Indians when they found that glorious creature wandering around free and for the taking known as the horse. And it improved their hunting and their success and gave them more life. More people stayed alive because they had more food because the obsolete was let go of and the new was embraced. Similarly, and even on a much grander scale, the necessity of letting go of the old covenant practices under the Mosaic law that at one time pointed to life. Faith in God and his promises now needs to be moved and that faith needs to be given to Jesus the Christ. For all of the law prefigured this Jesus, this ultimate savior, this ultimate sacrifice, this ultimate great high priest and minister of a heavenly tabernacle. And so now we arrive at the museum. And the writer of Hebrews is taking us again to see the Old Covenant, to see the Old Covenant and its sanctuary and the tabernacle. And then he shall bring us full circle in the latter portion of this chapter to a new covenant sanctuary and a new covenant sacrifice. But this morning we offload our bus, if you will, and we 
go inside the museum. And the writer says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. A key there is the earthly sanctuary. So in our trip to the museum of the tabernacle of the old covenant, we then now go to the viewing of the sanctuary of the tabernacle. Now, I hope you caught the significance of the term here that he decided to use in presenting this view. He did not use the term temple. There was a temple in Israel, and even at the writing of the time of Israel, the temple that was rebuilt by Herod, Herod's temple that Jesus said would be pulled apart, is still operating. The Romans have not yet destroyed it. That will come in A.D. 70. It's still up. But he doesn't decide to take us on a museum visit to the temple. He takes us to the tabernacle. The first edifice. The first structure that was made for the worship of God. And it is significant to our understanding of the new covenant as well and of the passing away of the Old Covenant. The earthly sanctuary, of course, is here on earth, and then he calls it a, a tabernacle was prepared. Now, a tabernacle is basically this, a tent. A tent. Now, not like you would see down in Cabela's, unless you're one of the super dupe hunter boys that buy the big grand tent for you and all your buddies. It's certainly not like the pup tents. It's certainly not like the shelter halves that we used in the military, not those kind of tents. But rather, this was a type of tent in which people dwelled, a tent you could live in. And that's exactly what the Hebrew term for tabernacle is. It's mishkan which means a dwelling. A tabernacle was prepared in the past, says the writer of Hebrews. And who would dwell in that tabernacle is given to us if we turn back in our Bibles to Exodus, the 25th chapter. And by the way, we're going to be visiting Exodus a number of times as well as Leviticus chapter 16 in this view, and to get an understanding of what temple worship was like. And those elements which are pointed out to us by the writer of Hebrews. He's, in a sense, our tour guide. And turning back to Exodus, the 25th chapter, we now read this very important verse, verse 8. And God is commanding the children of Israel through Moses, and he says this, And let them... Make me, God says, a sanctuary that I may listen, dwell among them. The very term here is tabernacle. That I may live among them and be with them. And we have to realize that when this happened in history, it's the first time this had happened ever since the fall of the Garden of Eden. God was never present with man in any sort of permanent way from the time in which man fell in the Garden of Eden and was cast out. And this is God progressively drawing believing men and women closer to himself 
to be with him, which is our original design. You realize that? We were designed. We were designed to live with God, to be always in his presence. That's what our purpose was, to live with him, to live under him, to enjoy him, to work with him, to be his hands and his feet, if you will, and to be under his glorious commands and enjoy the blessings of God, very God. And it is sin that separated us from that. So in the right time and in the right place with the people on their way to the promised land of God, he tells them to design for me a dwelling place, a tent that I can live in. And he designs it with specificity. And it's interesting that those portions aren't the part given to us in the book of Hebrews, yet we are given some things. We're giving some things. But I want to read one more verse. You just, just allow me to go back there and read verse 9. It said, that I may dwell with, among them. And then verse 9 of Exodus 25 says, According to all that I show you, that is, listen, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. It is that which God had displayed to Moses a pattern that we have already studied in Hebrews. And that pattern was taken from the heavenly tabernacle that pre-existed the earthly tabernacle. The one on earth that the Hebrews used was patterned after the one in heaven. So God has been progressively drawing his people closer to live with him. And in Jesus Christ, a giant leap was taken. You say one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind really only applies to Jesus Christ. If I can steal that from Neil Armstrong, the astronaut boys, and do this. In John chapter 1, in John chapter 1, something changed on earth. Something changed on earth at the time in which they were obeying the Mosaic law, in which priests were ministering in the temple. A man appeared. In the beginning was the Word, John 1, 1. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then we skip to verse 14 of John 1 and we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The Word, Jesus Christ, the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning with God, came down to live with 
man every single day in public outside of a tabernacle. It changed. For the better, for the closer, for the nearer, he tabernacled with them and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, that glory that could only be seen in short pieces and little times of the great high priest entering the most holy place. Now in Jesus Christ came full figure. The tabernacle is of the past. Dwelling of God replaced through Jesus Christ. But the tabernacle of the past indeed, indeed, was a blessing. Remember, it says the earthly sanctuary that was in the tabernacle. The earthly sanctum. It is figurative of the idea of, of safety. Of being even under God's protection. For we know that when God started walking with the children of Israel, even as they came out of Egypt, and he led them during the day by a pillar of cloud, and he guarded them by night with a pillar of fire, even when the Egyptians came up on their tail, or you military guys, they came up on their six, there was a pillar of fire. The very glory of God protecting the people. We have an example of the protective nature of God in his powerful person and in his glory in Psalm 27. Psalm 27, I want to begin just by reading verse 1 and then skip to verse 5. I wish I had time to read them all, but I must save some time. Please, please read this, this psalm. Psalm 27, 1, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light. And my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He said, the Lord is my light and the Lord is my salvation. Who then shall I fear? Rhetorically, no one. He goes on to say, the Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? If the Almighty is your God, if the Almighty is your Lord... Whom shall you fear? Look at verse 5 as I skip down there. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me, listen, in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. The whole idea of God dwelling, of God's tabernacle being even among men is an evidence of God's protective care, his provision and the safety that his presence among his people bring. And it brought that to Israel as he dwelt in their midst. And it should bring us even more to a sense of security knowing that God dwells in our midst and even God the Holy Spirit and Christ himself dwells in us. But it's also figurative, this idea of dwelling and tabernacling with, the, tabernacling with the people. It brings even more so the important message and symbolism of communion 
with God. Communion or fellowship with God. Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the evening, the Bible tells us. But when sin entered the world and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were cast out of that garden and they were cursed. And the fellowship that they once had with God was now broken apart. And that nearness and that dearness and that fellowship was split asunder. And God, if he had wanted to be immediately just, could have killed them and all mankind for all generations to come would have suffered not only a physical death, but a spiritual death of eternal separation. You see, that's the thing about hell. Hell isn't just a place of suffering and torment. It is that. But the greatest torment of hell is separation from God, very God. Right now, every non-believer, everyone in this room, everyone under the sound of my voice that is not believing in Jesus Christ, that denies he is God, denies he is Savior, wants nothing to do with him, and you don't care about him at all, and you don't think you have to, right now you are living under the grace and power of God. He is reigning on you, the just and the unjust alike he reigns upon. He gives the snow on the mountains, and he gives... Uh, good seasons to you and he's providing for you even giving you children and family and joy and peace though at every breath you deny his existence you know the presence of God from the rising of the sun in the morning till it's going down at night you have a certain amount of God's care and protection over you and when you die failing to believe in Jesus Christ you will know the eternal separation of God Your soul now cannot even imagine that. Your spirit cannot even, uh, even absorb that absence for which you were created to enjoy. So hell is both a danger to us to be warned against, but it is also something that is a loss of eternal joy and fulfillment that is lost. Communion with God People all over the world are looking for their soulmates. Even Christians. You know, you can go to different websites and try to find the right person to live with. Christian mingle. We even have some Christian minglers in our congregation. And why were they on there? They're looking for their soulmate. They're looking for someone to have communion with, to have fellowship with, to live their life with. But the best Christian mingle that's ever created is God's. That's why there's no marriage in heaven, folks. Communion with God replaces every relationship you could ever imagine and to the infinite degree. Restored to the fellowship for which we were designed. The Shekinah glory of God present just like in Israel in the holy place. As he led them as a, a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. But there's another important feature of this tabernacle, and it fits so perfectly with Hebrews, because remember, Hebrews has already told us that the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, and worship in the tabernacle and in the temple, it was designed to be temporary. Galatians had told us even more strongly that it was given to Israel as a tutor for their infancy, until they grew up in knowledge, and the time was for them to embrace their Messiah that the entirety of that law represented. And so rather than using the temple 
the writer of Hebrews uses the tabernacle, the first. For the tabernacle could move with the people, but it was also a temporary dwelling. Do you remember what David said? David built himself, once he'd gotten Jerusalem, and he'd built himself a mighty house, a castle, if you will, a palace. He said in his heart, oh my goodness, David said, I have a house, and the Lord my God lives in a tabernacle, a tent. I need to build him a house. And he, thinking he's doing a great thing, right, goes and says, I'm going to build you a house. And God answers him through Nathan the prophet and says, have I asked you to build me a house as though I needed one? Have I asked you? Who do you think you are? I gave the orders. I designed my tabernacle. There I am. What do you think you're doing? You don't get to do it. As a matter of fact, you don't get to do it. I'm going to let you build me a temple, but you know what? You're a man of blood, so you can't do it. Your son will have to do it. There's some significance in that. God doesn't need a permanent dwelling place even now. Even now under this new covenant in the church age, God has no permanent dwelling place. This building that is beautiful, that God has given us, and in which we meet, will not change our status as a church one iota if tomorrow it is gone. This building does not a church make. The people who are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, who are in Lewistown and part of this, we are the church and we are Mobile. I could preach on evangelism right now and I'm stopping myself. Which means you can get out with that message everywhere. And then meet together wherever we need to. He is not bound by buildings. He wasn't then. He isn't now. And he never will be. God is too big. Another feature of the tabernacle is it was set up in the center of the camp. The center of the camp of Israel. As they moved this temporary structure, they moved it along. They packed up. When God said it was time to move and the cloud started moving, they packed up all their tents. They packed up the tent of God. They packed up everything. They put the acacia wood poles in the Ark of the Covenant and off they marched and moved. And then when they set up camp again, every time they set up camp, the tabernacle of God was set in the center of the camp. This, of course, symbolized when God's in your midst, God needs to be the center of your life, of your living. Everything surrounds and circles back to God. And when you come to God, you come to the center. Every tribe came from the wheel-like pattern unto the center to worship God. And then were led to God by that priestly class and tribe, the Levites. A tabernacle. Temporary, because the law was temporary. Unable to capture the totality of God, but a dispensation of grace. Wherein they could have God in their midst, but in a limited fashion of approach. 
Our writer of Hebrews goes on to now say, in viewing this sanctuary that is part of the tabernacle, he describes furniture. The features of it in the furniture of God. And he begins here with the lampstand. With the lampstand, he says, in which this sanctuary is the lampstand. So right now we are outside of the holiest of holies. We're in the holy place. The first level of holiness in the approach to God inside the tabernacle was this holy place. And he says, in which was the lampstand. And so now as we're in the museum, we take a look back at Exodus chapter 25, and we read here beginning in verse 31. Exodus 25 beginning in verse 31. Moses speaking what God has told him, you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. I want you to just close your eyes and listen. See if you can visualize this piece. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. The six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of the one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch, with an ornamental knob and a flower, and so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower, and there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that, the, so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold and all these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain in which was the lampstand. The beauty of it, the craftsmanship required. I cannot even imagine the detail and the hours necessary to take a single lump, a talent of gold, and to beat it out with a hammer time and time again. One single piece, never broken, spread out, then reformed to fold little buds and flowers and springing for it, from it bowls and light. The most ornate piece of all. A symbol of light. 
a symbol of light. Man at this time could not approach the light of God's glory, just the high priest one time a year, and God gives them light. The tabernacle was designed so that light shone from it always. The temple later would be designed that its windows were such that when the lamps are lit, the light of this lampstand would shine forth, constantly reminding the people that God is light. And from the gold and from the reflection. And that God is always the light. The light of guidance. The light of the ever-present glory of God. The light of the power of God. And then our writer says, The table. In which this sanctuary was this ornate and beautiful, glorious gold lampstand to give light. And then a table. A table, let's look at it at Exodus 25 again, beginning in verse 23. So you shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame uh, of a hand breadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, and shall put rings on the four corners that are on its four legs, they're at its four legs. Verse 27 now, the rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. Also a picture of its temporary nature being carried around. Verse 29, you shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. A table. And we're looking at a table. You say, oh, well, thanks, Pastor. This is like so many visits to the museum. I don't get it. It's gold. It's pretty. What am I supposed to see? You're supposed to see not the table. The table isn't the important feature. This is like a picture frame. Notice it has a frame around it. And what's on it is being framed. And the most important thing that's on it is the showbread. The showbread. See, when we have pictures, you know, it's really an insult if someone brings you into their house and they want to show you a picture. And you go up to the picture and you say, nice frame. Before any prior comments on the picture. So for us as well, we're not quite done yet and there's a reason he's doing it this way. He's just framed the picture. What is important in this sacred place? The light represented by the lamps of God shining. The beauty of God's artistry given to man that he uses for his own glory. And a table of gold. And on the table, 
the showbread. The showbread. We move from the table and now we go back again to chapter 25. Chapter 25, verse 5. Or excuse me, 20, uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm in Leviticus. Forgive me, I just skipped on myself. I want you to go to Leviticus. I, I, I scared myself all of a sudden. The showbread, we've had a mention in verse 30 of chapter 25 of Exodus. And now we go to get more detail on the showbread in Leviticus 24, verse 5. Verse 5 reads, And you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it, Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, listen now, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel, listen, by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, for it is the most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire, by a perpetual statute, the frame pictures the bread. The bread pictures the 12 tribes of Israel. And notice at this time, God has come down to man, but yet he has had to keep himself secluded in the holiest of holies. His glory that appears there between the cherubim that we'll discuss soon cannot be seen by man lest he die. But yet God has symbolically placed these 12 tribes of Israel before him in the form, the symbolic form, the metaphorical form, if you will, of bread. This bread to be renewed every week by the priests and only, only eaten in the sanctified precepts of the tabernacle. You cannot Take it out. You cannot remove the symbol of my people always being before me, always basking in the glory of me, away from me. I won't let you do it. Perpetually, my people are in my eye, are under my shining light, and enjoy my covenant promise Forever. Old Testament and New Testament because the Old Testament isn't old enough unless you go back to Abraham. And the promise to Abraham was forever. And it's symbolized by this. And think of what it would be. Six days. The incense of the Lord saturating the bread. One thing I know about bread is you don't put anything in the sack of bread that you don't want the bread to taste like. Am I right? I'm right. This bread sprinkled with frankincense. 
of the offerings of God and the incense of God all around and constantly on it. I can only imagine it was a wonderful ambrosia. And even the very reverence of eating it for the priest. Look at the priest, the picture of a priest eating the bread. The priest who ministers for the people to God eat God's people in a figurative sense. The oneness of it, bringing it to God, using it for God. The sanctity of it. Symbolical. The unity of God with the people of God in the presence of God. Should we say amen? And then this morning I want to touch, I want to move, I want to come very quietly. I want to move beyond the holy place to the most holy. This place says behind the second veil. Behind the second veil. That part of the tabernacle, he says, which is called, listen, the holiest of all. Now, I don't know how you imagine this, but say in our museum that this place is made to scale. It's made to scale by the measurements that God had dictated. It would only be a room if you will, a, a tent room, the hangings around it, 15 feet by 15 feet, a perfect square. 15 feet by 15 feet, a perfect square, surrounded by the heavy draperies of the veils, preventing any light from escaping. And then he tells us, in which had the golden altar of incense. The golden altar of incense. And for this, again, we need to turn back to Exodus. And we go to chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. I'll begin reading in verse 1 about this place and this golden altar of incense. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square. And two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay its top, its sides all around, and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it. Under the molding on both its sides, you shall place them on its two sides, and they shall be holders for the poles with which you shall bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it, listen, before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. 
You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a meal offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. There seems to be some in the interpretation world that have seen a problem here, and maybe you have as well. In our relation of Hebrews, it has this on the inside of the holiest of all. And in Exodus here, it seems to be putting it on the outside of the veil. How do we reconcile this? Well, Leviticus helps, and I'm taking you there just in case some of you are Bible students of an astute nature and want this answered. So I'm heading you off at the pass. Leviticus 16. This tells us of the procedure that in fact the altar of incense was in the sanctuary, the holy place, outside of the most holy place, but once a year this was to happen. Leviticus 16, 12 through 13, we read this, Then he shall take, this is the high priest, only the high priest, then he shall take a censer, listen, full of burning coals of fire, from where? From the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, finely beaten, now listen, and bring it inside the veil. So the picture that we're seeing is actually a picture of the ministry of the high priest. That is what Hebrews wants to accentuate, that there's a high priest who is bringing this incense that has been burning outside the veil of the holy place, and he brings it inside the veil, and he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony. Listen, lest he die. Now, so far we have talked about how wonderful, how glorious, how magnanimous it was that God has allowed man, has condescended to come down and tabernacle with men. How wonderful that is. God's presence is here. Yet, these ministrations of the high priest in every form here is now showing us that drawing near to the presence of God is not something to do lightly or inappropriately but rather with the greatest reverence, the greatest care, the most infinite attention to detail, if you don't bring the incense and you don't bring the right kind of incense and you don't put it where I tell you to put it, you're going to die. Once a year, one guy could see the glory of God, could minister for the people of God on the Day of Atonement, and he was in fear of death. It isn't the book of Hebrews that we will read. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We need to become a people of reverence and going to the museum helps us become more reverential for the power and person of God in his holiness and in his glory. Because this articulates it. In the center of the holiest place of all, 
of the sacrifice being made on the day of atonement and the incense being brought inside, there is danger. The purpose of the incense was to create a cloud dense with the smoke of this incense so that the glory of God did not kill the high priest. I'm going to appear, but you can't handle it. So I will protect you from myself. The grace of God providing a way for a physical man to minister for the people of God in the presence of God without death. It is a blessing. But it is also a warning. A shade over the glory of God. Does that not remind you of Moses? When he looked up on the mountain and he saw a bush that was burning and yet not being consumed. And Moses went up on the mountain and he looked to see this thing. And from somewhere the realm of the Spirit of God came a voice and said, take off your sandals, take off your shoes. The place on which you stand is holy ground. Wherever God is becomes holy. And the reverence and the sanctity of his presence must be honored by people who have faith in God. And this needs to be a lesson even in our age and in our time where even in the church of God somehow we believe that the reverence for God is not important. And what he has required and what he wants is of no merit. We can make church how we want it. We can do what we want. We can dress how we want. We can be comfortable. A trip to the museum is important to remember the sanctity of God, the dispensation of the grace of God, but the dangerous nature of that very God. Even Moses later in his life, he's growing weary. He wanted to see God. These people are wearing him out. Exodus 33, he asked to see God, and God said in Exodus 33, 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. But he graciously hid Moses in the cleft of a rock, remember that, and then passed by so he could see just the reflection of his glory. So it was with the high priest. You see, just a piece of the glory of God accepting the offering of the children of Israel for their sins on the day of atonement. For God had said in Leviticus 16:2, I will appear in a cloud above the mercy seat. The glory would shine. Truly in Hebrews we are told that we may come boldly before the throne of grace. But remember we cannot come alone. If you believe you can come before the throne of grace alone, then you don't understand the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. For it is this high priest that you need to go before the throne of grace for you. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, chapter 4.14, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy. Why? Because we're guilty. You don't come flippantly. You need mercy. We may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The high priest was going to the mercy seat. This thing we shall talk about next week. But I see that our field trip to the museum has to take a pause for lunch. Just like when you've always gone to the museum, you get to have lunch. And so we'll do that as well. We're going to take lunch. First we're going to have the Lord's table, then a fellowship meal. And then next week we're going to come back for the Ark of the Covenant and what is inside? That's dessert. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this view inside the sanctity of your sanctuary. Thank you for the ministry which you have so faithfully and graciously been perpetuating upon your people Israel and all who believed with them, Jew or Gentile alike. Let us be people who reverence you, Lord. Let us be those who are humbled by you. And yes, may we be people who fear you with a holy and a righteous terror. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.